If you, um, if, you have, um, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles back there. There's also a study guide that we prepared for the new um, sermon series. We've done this, we kind of test run, I guess, with James, of which we have more in the back for James. Feel free to grab one uh, at the, the bookstore or whatever you would call it. Um, and all the sermons and whatnot are online, so you can uh, study if you choose or, or use it in whatever way you see fit. This is for uh, the next five weeks, uh, which is Sacred Assembly. It's the title of our series. And in it, there is um, a lot of information that uh, partially it's for our community groups. If you're not in a road group, you can, well, we'd certainly love for you to, to be in one. They've uh, just started, really, in lots of ways. And uh, you can just email groups at damascusroadchurch.org to find which one might work best for you. They're in the back as well, listed on the bulletin board. Um, but also, it, it provides... Uh, uh, kind of a layout for what the sermons are going to be, some stuff that I may not address. It provides uh, space for notes and then questions and, and a lot of other things. So feel free to grab one in the back if you haven't already or on the way out, and uh, please use it. And uh, it's uh, hopefully it's the church's responsibility, we believe, to equip and not just to preach and walk away. And so we're doing our best to do that. Um, but today uh, we're going to start the series, a little bit of an intro, and to be quite frank, it's going to feel... I think a little like drinking from a fire hose because I'm just going to give you a ton of information and verses and we're going to be going through scripture like crazy. So if you have a Bible, um, you're going to probably spend most of your time in the book of Ephesians. You want to put your finger there, but we're going to be all over the place. If you don't have a Bible, please grab, grab one. But we'll get right to work and I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 16 uh, and the second part of verse 18 where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And for the next five weeks, as I said, we're going to be in a study called Sacred Assembly. And the study is about the people of God, the, the family of the Father, if you will, the body and the bride of Jesus Christ, this thing called the church. And throughout the years, this uh, misunderstood and somewhat misrepresented and often misused thing that Jesus said he was going to build uh, has, in many ways, developed quite the reputation and not all good. There's all kinds of connotations for people in and out of the church about the word or concept church. And if you look at the, the writer's market today, or the Christian market in particular, you would go to your average Christian bookstore, which uh, has some other good things other than Bibles, but they do have a lot of other books with all kinds of titles, and you'll see a, a flooding, if you will, like no other time in history, of books that are kind of fix-the-church type of books. And everyone, it seems, wants to talk about what's wrong with the church, and few want to talk or discuss what's right with it. And there are books that attack new and old church models. There are books that talk about strategic plans to grow your church because, of course, all churches are shrinking. And there are books to help those stuffy, um, out-of-touch, 1984, long of the 80s, Christians engage with today's culture a little bit better. And a how-to book, if you will. And complaints abound about the church. This is not a new thing. You have probably heard many. Maybe you have made some yourself. Some of the complaints are church is boring, church is outdated, church is too big, there's too many mega churches out there, it needs to be small, church is abusive, they're political, narrow-minded, church is fake. And this is from Christians in a lot of ways, in a lot of times. And obviously there, there are lots of other complaints, but for every complaint, if you look at any of the titles and, and maybe even read some of the books that are offered out there, you would see that they usually offer some silver bullet solution to fix the church and what's wrong with it. And typically, uh, a lot of the solutions propose you don't meet in a, in a building, you meet in a home, you burn incense, you be really creative and kind to people, and you have spiritual conversations, no sermons. Um, you don't allow anyone into leadership um, because everyone's equal and has a fair shake in whatever decisions, if any, are ever made. And you don't judge anything or anyone or draw any lines anywhere. 
That's kind of what a lot of the solutions come out as. And you'll often hear proponents of, of some of these solutions crying out such things, and maybe you've even said these, we need to stop going to church or doing church and start being the church. And all that sounds really spiritual. But when asked maybe what it means beyond, you know, that phrase, you'll find that they don't go too far beyond rejecting just organized gatherings, formal leadership, and any of the old outdated rituals that are now meaningless and we just do out of routine. And not all their criticisms are bad. Uh, There are some good things that we can learn from a lot of the criticisms. But my fear is that we, the church, will begin to design, or I should say redesign the church, not according to the architect and the builder and the foundation, Jesus, but we'll start following our own set of directions, much like I do whenever I open up an Ikea box and go, I don't need that, and we'll see what happens. And it's been disastrous every time I've done that. But sadly, I do think there are a lot of churches working really hard, and I, to be quite frank, confess that I think our church, and a lot of the stuff we first started off was my ideas, started this direction, where you're making decisions and, and planning things and organizing in such a way to work hard to fix whatever the loudest voices say are wrong. In an attempt, because we're scared maybe a little bit to be irrelevant, scared that they're not going to think we're real or whatever. And there are local churches, local as in the, the Lake Stevens, Arlington, Marysville area, whose slogans, I don't know if it's mission statements, but it's what they advertise, are come redefine the church experience with us. There was a local church plant that's just started here. I happened to run into the guy. I was kind of just looking to see what they were all about and read how they had had meetings. And I know this sounds like I'm mocking, but I'm not really, just what I read, had meetings gathering the community and they, they sat at restaurants and they asked people this question, what is the church of our dreams? And their effort, or they said the reason was this, was to find, quote, ways to make church fun, friendly, and meaningful. And I know their intent, and I think I know their heart, or I hope I know their heart, but I'm just not sure that our dreams are where we should be starting when we're trying to figure out what we should be doing as the church or what the church is. If your dreams are anything like mine kind of messed up a little bit sometimes. So all of us are guilty a little bit of talking about what we don't like about the church, but we don't often talk about what church is. I grew up in the church, was raised planning churches and being a part of churches and and went to a Christian college and became involved in leadership at churches, and I don't remember ever hearing a sermon or a talk or an explanation about what the the church is and the definition. And I opened the dictionary this week to find what does the the dictionary define the church as. And it says it's a building. That's the first definition. There's others. But the first one is a building typically for Christian or religious worship. And you might wonder how anyone reading the New Testament could ever come to that definition. And my guess is they didn't read the definition or the New Testament to come to that because there were no buildings back then. They probably watched Christians and defined it that way. And sometimes the question of what is the church is never even asked because I think we assume, we assume we know what it is when I don't actually think we do. And even if we take the risk of throwing out a definition, if I were to ask you, we'd have a variety of different answers and I believe all of them would be colored by our negative traumatic experiences of Sunday school, or mean people, weird people, clicky people, uh, juvenile legalisms, cheesy 1974 music, deathly boring sermons, terrible leaders, or meaningless traditions that we don't really know what we're doing, and it would sound more like a diatribe than it would a definition of anything. I know everything I don't like about the church, but you wouldn't necessarily tell me what's right about it or what it should be. And... 
Many people, including a lot of us here, don't even know exactly what we're doing here. But we do know one thing, one thing we hold tightly to, and that is, quote, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. That's the one thing I know. Yeah. Surprise. But just like our personal relationship with God, or our personal relationship with Jesus, more accurately stated, attending church becomes a personal experience measured by what it gives me or doesn't give me. And sadly, there are, there are an increasing number of disgruntled people, disillusioned people, and disconnected believers that are hopping from church to church or leaving the church altogether, searching for a new version of church that they hope will provide them that fulfilling spiritual, typically emotional experience, the tingles or whatever. And many in this search, maybe you're one of these people or maybe you know people who have done this, in this search they, they launch a lot of spiritual communities in all shapes and sizes. Some have very extreme organization. They're called cults. Others have no organization, believing that, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, as Jesus taught, there I am. Not realizing that Matthew 18 is a, largely a chapter about church discipline, that the institution of church does, and that verse is about just that. But they go, well, gosh, wherever the presence of God is, that's where church is. So we can gather at Starbucks, golf, wherever we happen to be. And if I've got a couple of Christians around me, here's church. And I think at the heart of it, because our search starts with me, and what I want, and man, and not Jesus, what you begin to see, if you just look a little bit, is that their pursuit ends in participating in and building all kinds of new communities that are the first, furthest thing from church. They're typically, not all, typically unbiblical. They're emotionally charged and driven. And everything becomes defined or redefined by their desires, even Scripture. They begin to see this and go, well, that doesn't feel good. That must have been for back then. We're the new church. And they begin to affirm all the things that God has said we shouldn't. So I believe that this series is hugely important. Hugely important. And it's important because many believe that the church has lost its way. That the proverbial sky is falling. That the church is dead or at least dying. And in essence, they believe that Jesus was wrong. When he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Doesn't mean there's no corruption, but they would go a step further. And many claim, many confess to love Jesus and claim to love Jesus. And in the same breath say they don't love the church. There's a title of a book called That Very Thing. And my contention is this. You cannot love Jesus and not love his bride. That's impossible. They're inseparable. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start there. We're going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians, and it talks about how Jesus feels about the church. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, you may have read this in, if you're married and counseling for husbands and wives, and it is one of the most powerful pieces of Scripture in describing Jesus' relationship with his people. And it says in verse 25 of chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves the church. He loves the church like a sinless husband is to love his bride and loves his bride. Jesus died and he rose again to reconcile sinners to God and to gather them 
as this thing he called the church. And he didn't die for the world, though his death does bless the world. He died for the church. And Jesus cares for the church in a way that a husband is to care for his bride. And he builds the church of which he is the foundation of, and he takes care of the church and presents the church in beauty. And he rules the church as its protector and its king. And my question for me is if Jesus loves the church, and I say I love Jesus, how should or do I feel about it? And why do I feel that way? We don't naturally, I think, feel this way partially out of ignorance because most of us don't know what the snark we're doing here. We don't know what the church is. And we've never bothered to really ask maybe some of those hard questions. So we titled the series Sacred Assembly, not because we want to be assembly of anything, but because I want to capture the sacredness, recapture I should say, the sacredness of the church. Because there are very few things that are sacred anymore. I spent ten years teaching high school. That was more than enough time to evidence that. There's nothing sacred about what we wear, what we watch, what we think, what we say. It's just nothing. Complete irreverence for anything. And I'm not talking about you need to wear your Sunday best and you need to talk with certain words. I'm not really talking about behaviors at all. I'm talking about the heart attitude that actually affects all of our behaviors. I'm talking about the sacredness and the reverence for something much like Moses had as he encountered God in front of the burning bush and he sat and laid on his face because of the holiness that was there. That reverence that doesn't exist today. Because there has to be, I believe, and I think there is something special about this about our gathering. And it's no secret, as I said, that our culture doesn't revere much of anything. And I'm afraid that this attitude has actually bled into the church. And typically, as people come into churches, we begin to measure them in the same way we measure culture with our consumeristic kind of mentalities that we don't even realize we have. Is this enjoyable? Is this comfortable? Is this entertaining? And we go, well, this is a bad church or a good church based on those things. And for many, to be honest, I won't ask for hands, going to church is a burden. The first thing that gets jettisoned when something better comes along, like vacations, football, sleep, it's the first thing. Some of us come out of duty. Some of us come out of just routine. We've always gone to church. Some of us come out of guilt. Some of us haven't a clue why we're here. And instead of being what I think the sacredness is about, the experience that we look forward to, the one thing that I won't jettison, the hour where we remember who we are, The day that we devote to celebrating a place of rest with our family, with our brothers and our sisters in this shared identity, it's just church. Not something that we look forward to. And I think it's sad that I I find even myself guilty of this, that fewer and fewer people come to our gathering, I think, and they enter prepared to meet God as much as prepared to see, well, am I going to like the music this week? Is he going to say something in the sermon that ticks me off or makes me laugh? It's church. And I fear that if our assembly becomes duty, what we just do, the thing you dread, the thing you find excuses to avoid, and don't think that I'm feeling this way because, well, I'm the pastor. I've gone through the same struggles. But if it becomes duty then I don't think we have a clue what we're actually doing here if we're just coming. And so in order to recapture the sacredness, we need to focus less on what we do for people or what I get from this experience and recognizing who we are in this gathering together and what God says we are. 
And in order to recapture that perspective, I think we have to actually go back to the beginning because the church isn't some extra add-on parentheses on God's plan. I believe actually it's the fulfillment of everything he started in Genesis 1-1. And God's people, or the gathering of God's people, the story of God's people, doesn't begin with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. It begins in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And after the fall of man, if you read it in Genesis chapter 3, God promises right there that the Son of Woman will come and crush Satan's head. Speaking about Jesus, speaking the hope in the midst of sin. And as we watch the story unfold, we see God choosing and gathering His people. He begins with Noah, who was a righteous man. There was nothing special about Noah. He uses Noah, picks Noah to bless, and takes him through the wrath that is the flood. He chooses Abraham, to whom he he speaks this promise and says, Through your family, I know you're 80, you have no kids, but through your family, I'm going to bless the world. And you see his son eventually born, Isaac. And then his son eventually born named Jacob. And Jacob is renamed Israel. And God constantly spending time with this family and these people. Now the The Greek word for church is ekklesia, and it's a Greek Old Testament translation of a Hebrew word called kahal. Now, it describes the assembly of of a called out people, and God calls these sons of Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, who has 12 sons, probably heard 12 tribes of Israel, and one son named Joseph, who gets poorly treated by his brothers, ends up in Egypt. And all the people then end up in Egypt blessed, but then Exodus starts and Joseph is forgotten and the people are enslaved. I preached on this in Exodus. And God calls his people through Moses out of slavery from Egypt, gathers this large assembly now. And the whole redemption in Exodus from Egypt culminates at a special assembly at the base of a special mountain called Sinai or Horeb. And at that assembly, as the people are gathered at the bottom of the mountain, God gives his law, and he seals an agreement with them in blood, and basically marries his people and makes a covenant with them. And in Deuteronomy 4.10, which comes later, Moses is teaching the people, reminding them, because they kept forgetting of what had happened. And in Deuteronomy 4.10, he says about this experience, Do you remember how on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me. Do you remember this? That I may let them hear my words, so they learn to fear me all the days that live on the earth, and they may teach their children to do so. And at Mount Sinai, then he claims his people, says, These are mine out of all the peoples of the earth. I'm choosing them. Not because they're special, not because they have extra spirituality to them, not because they're even very obedient. He says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, and you can read it, I'm choosing them because I'm choosing them. Because of my love, nothing special about you. He sets his love on them. Out of all the peoples they were chosen, they were God's possession, they were God's treasure. The church or the assembly of God is defined by belonging to God out of all the peoples of the earth. They have a special, undeserved, unearned grace and mercy that has nothing to do with them and everything to do with God. And as God's people, not only do you see him choose, but he decides to dwell with them in a unique way. He has them construct a tabernacle, which eventually becomes a full temple. The tabernacle is like a portable temple. And he builds this temple and then has an ark within this temple. And there his glory at the very last verse of Exodus, the glory of God comes down and dwells with the people. So in the center of the camp, whenever they set up camp, whenever they moved, the glory of God went before them. I don't even think we can imagine there's paintings and whatnot to kind of envision what that looked like. It must have been amazing to sit there and to know the glory of God is there. We are in the presence of God among all the peoples of the earth. 
And it didn't mean that God's presence wasn't elsewhere, but it meant uniquely, in a more powerful way, God was with Israel. And they gathered regularly, physically, they gathered together to do sacrifices at God's presence, to worship, to feast, to pray, all intended to remind them who they were, that they were chosen among all peoples, because God loved them. And it's clear that as you read the Old Testament, which is pretty much a story of messed up people, that they forgot who they were. They clearly forgot who they were. So God raised up priests and prophets and kings, and all of those, good and bad, were called or used to call them back into relationship and remind them who they were. But the choosing and the redeeming and even the dwelling always had a future restoration in in sight. They always knew that it was temporary, that the blood wasn't going to cover it forever. And he always talked about a future salvation, a full restoration, where a Savior would come and set all things right. And so the Old Testament is waiting for that Messiah. And in Isaiah and other places, but in Isaiah 56, I believe, God says there will be a time when, when you're not insulated from all my glory. We don't have to go through all these, you know, walls and whatnot protect you from my glory. And there will be other people outside of Israel that I gather together. And I will restore my people. And then Jesus shows up. And He's not only this promised Savior and King, but He shows up as Emmanuel, God with us. A unique dwelling of God. And he comes and lives this sinless life, perfectly glorifying God in all ways that a man, particularly a Jewish man, can. And John 1.14 says the Word had become flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. The same Word. And John says that we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the glory of the Father that Moses, when he was on top of Mount Sinai, saying, show me your glory. And he says, I'll, I can't show you all of it. I'll give you a glimpse of my beauty because it will kill you. That same glory of the Father, that glory that filled the temple, that glory that even Jesus' own disciples said, show us the Father. And Jesus responded and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And though a lot of people denied him, and his own people rejected him, he began to build this assembly, this gathering. And he gathered his disciples, started with Andrew and Peter and John, and reminded them, as the prophet Isaiah had said, that there were others. And he even says in John chapter 10, speaking with them, he says, I have other sheep, verse 16, that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And Jesus declares himself to be that one shepherd. Gathering that one flock who he will redeem from all the sheep of the world. There's particular sheep, he says. And in verse 10, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 29, he says, The sheep hear my voice among all the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There are other sheep coming into this one flock. And in Matthew 16, where we started, as he's talking to Peter, and he says, Peter, who am I? He's like, you are the Son of God. He's like, all right, I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to have to die. Peter pulls him aside and says, what are you talking about? Don't say that out loud. Are you kidding me? He says, get behind me, Satan. He says, the shepherd has to die for the sheep. For this one flock that I'm building. And he says, I'm not going to die for them because they're special. Because they're not dirty amongst all the dirty people. Not because they're more obedient or more spiritual. But because they're my sheep and I love them. The same words that God had spoken. And Jesus does die. He's crucified. And He does rise again the third day. And He does so to reconcile sinners to God and to gather them together in that one flock 
that one body called the church. And Ephesians 2, I'm going to read a big chunk, talk about that bringing together. Ephesians 2, verse 11 says this. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, all you non-Jews, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, because that was the identifying mark of a Jew, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Jesus, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, the game has changed. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with that one body that God started with a long time ago. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, the family of God, adopted by the blood of Jesus. And contrary to what is maybe contemporary thought, Jesus was not anti-religious, anti-doctrine, anti-organization, anti-enter whatever you dislike about the church. The Bible says that Jesus loved the world, but he loved the church particularly or especially. And that was because most of all, he loved God and God's people. And Jesus spent his life and his death calling people to confess and to repent and put their faith in Him as He called them out of the world into the church. And after 40 days, He rose again, spent 40 days with His disciples. He says, I'm leaving. Can you imagine how the disciples feel? Like, are you kidding me? We just started this new thing, and now our King is going. This is not good. And He'd already told them, it's good for me to leave. In John 16, He says, I'm going to send you a comforter. Comforter. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. If I don't go away, He won't come. It's better for Him to come. And on the day of Pentecost, if you read in Acts chapter 2, you see the Holy Spirit comes, and just as Jesus was anointed, you have the disciples anointed to do the same mission that Jesus was on. And the Holy Spirit wasn't given to the world. It was given to the church, to the disciples who were there. And His dwelling in the hearts of His disciples sealed their adoptions as God's kids. They were in God's family, not everyone who's in the world. The church. And now God dwells in what the Bible calls the temple of our hearts. In the same way He dwelt with Israel, all of that glory, possessed now by individuals, but possessed by the church. And today, people want to know, take that fact and go, well, why do we come to church then? I mean, if we got the Holy Spirit, and that's the full glory of God, why do I go to church? Can I have church anywhere? And what they want to argue against, I think, is the visible church. What you see in favor of the invisible church. And in essence, I think they want to reject the sacredness and the authority of of the institution that God built and place that sacredness and authority in the control of the individual, that personal thing. And the truth is, both are sacred. Both are sacred. And those who only want to talk about the invisible church, in my experience, usually end up having a faith that's invisible. I am not an invisible Christian. God didn't intend for Christians to be invisible. 
my and your faith is intended to be, I'm saying, not intended to be invisible, individual, independent, or private. And though I believe that there is an invisible church, a church as God sees it, that's what the Reformation was all about. Because the Catholic Church was all about the visible church only. The Reformation said, well, I'm not always sure that the visible church is the invisible church. And said they are both sacred. We also have a visible church, though. We worship together, we serve together, we love together, we learn together, we participate in the witness of the cross together. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and a couple following give us some insight. And it was a verse that kind of shook me this week because I hadn't maybe read it in this context. But it says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but many. And we skip to verse 18. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? It wouldn't exist, is the bottom line. It's not just an individual. And so through our togetherness, made possible by the Spirit, we declare the Gospel in what we say and how we love one another. James, again, shook me to the core because all the commands that James gives us to do, or at least most of them, you cannot do by yourself. You have to have community. You have to have a visible expression of the community to love. And so, the unity of the church then, this is part of the gospel. It's not to say that, that any group that calls themselves Christian or, or a spiritual community is biblical, because they gather and they're there. We'll talk about the marks of what makes a church in the next couple of weeks. But it is to say that the visible church, the gathering of the church, is a witness to the world of God's glory. Ephesians 3.10 talks about this very thing. It says that through the church, through the church, not necessarily the individual, the church the assembly of God, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And a lot of us think, well, okay, I'll go that far. Our attendance at church is, is you know, what's my witness? I'm here. There we go. Praise Jesus. And in truth, your faith is still personal, though you pretend to kind of be here or part of a community. But the Bible says that through the church, through the fellowship of the Spirit, we grow. We grow. In the church, through the Spirit, we receive life. In the church, through the Spirit, we understand truth. In the church, through the Spirit, we love one another. We only love because we know love. In the church, through the Spirit, we worship in all of our unworthiness together. And we do this not as individuals. It's impossible. Ephesians 2.20, still in Ephesians, speaking of the church, says, it was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What's that mean? I don't grow as an individual? No. But you don't grow like this. We are being built into something together. This gathering is sacred. Something spiritual is taking place as we grow together, as we live together as the church gathering visibly here. We're being built into that same thing that Israel was. 
where the presence of God dwells uniquely and powerfully in a way that maybe we don't fully understand, but the presence of God is here. This is not just an activity, not just an event that you go, well, maybe that will fit into my calendar. That's not how the Israelites participated in the worship of God. They didn't go because it was duty. They saw the presence of God there. We are being built into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so, I believe that we need to recapture the sacredness of our gathering. Because, as the Bible says, we are the people of God, chosen, out of the world. If you confess belief in Jesus Christ, that He died in your place on the cross as your substitute, not just an example because you couldn't work your way to God, and He paid that, and you believe He rose from the dead and gives you that perfect life, then you are in the body. You are the chosen people of God. You understand that simply because God said, I love you. You are a chosen individual to be part of a chosen group. And that group are followers of Jesus, led by Jesus, through the empowerment of the Spirit, that we might see Him again, ultimately, We're in the same boat that the Old Testament, waiting for Jesus to return. And until then, we love as a fellowship of the Spirit. And that's the only way we are able to love. Hebrews 10 says it this way. That's why he encourages us. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some which probably could have been written today, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the drawing, the day drawing near. There's no such thing as Churchill's Christianity. It doesn't exist. He cannot love Jesus and not love his bride. And I'll close with this, my own personal take on my experience in loving this gathering because I didn't always feel this way. I didn't always understand what was going on here that there was power here, there was beauty here, there was unity here, that this was glorifying to God. But I love the church, not just because I'm the pastor. I love to gather as a church because I know that my brothers and sisters are here. It was hilarious. Kaylin, my wife, told my son something the other day, and I listened to him talking, and I was like, why are you talking to your mom that way? It sounds disrespectful. That's as if you're talking to your sister. And he looked at me, he's like, well, she's my sister in Jesus. <laughs> this is true. But there's a lot of truth in that. There's a beauty in that. I, I gather with, with members of my family here. They're actually true members of my family, and then there are really members of my family. We're a family that gathers together and it feels good to know that I'm not alone. It feels good that I can look at people and be with people who believe the same thing I do, who feel the same way I do. I need that. I need to be reminded of that. I love coming to church because it is the place where I can sing to God. Yes, I sing in the shower and it sounds way better than when I sing here, but I certainly know that this gathering is a place where I sing with my, worship with my voice in a way that I do not do elsewhere. And yes, half the time I don't know the songs. Sometimes the, the music director hits a note, I'm like, no way is that going to happen, okay? I can't hit that, I don't want to hit that, because that reminds me of bad times in my life. So, when it, I, the fact is though, I'll still scream for Jesus here, because... I don't get to do it, or at least don't have a place to do it, any other time during the week. And yes, worship is a lifestyle. That's the, you know, worship is a lifestyle. Not 20 minutes on a Sunday. But we still have that 20 minutes. When else do you have that 20 minutes? When else do you stop and free yourself from distractions and say, I'm going to sing to my God. I'm going to confess His glory and His beauty and my depravity and my need for a Savior. I don't do that elsewhere, and I need that. I love coming to church, especially in the Northwest, in the Puget, liberal, freaky sound, because 
It is unusual and it's countercultural. Not going to church is the norm. Not being a Bible-thumping Christian who is in a service on a Sunday morning gathering God's people is not the majority of people. It is a very small minority. And it assures me this, that first of all, I kind of like being different, but that I'm called to be different. And the fact that I show up is not because I'm paid to. The fact that I show up reminds me that I believe. It reminds me that I'm different. It reminds me that I'm going to take a different step to identify with Jesus, unlike the rest of the world who pretends to identify with Jesus. I need that for me. I love coming to church because I enjoy being encouraged. I enjoy encouraging. I enjoy hearing the trials and the temptations that are people going through because it reminds me of my own, and I can encourage and cry and laugh with others who are experiencing amazing stories in difficult circumstances. It reminds me there's more to this world than just this, and I need that encouragement to keep going, to someone to stir me on towards good works. I know it's a crappy week. I know it's a terrible situation, but God is there. Where else are you going to do that? Not your job. I love coming to church because I hear God's word and I get challenged. And I half expected after last week to see Jim Fickert t-shirts and bobbleheads being, you know, made available to the rest of the church. But I enjoyed listening because I don't get to do that as often. But I certainly preached to myself for a week before I sit up here and share anything. But when I'm, if I'm honest, in the privacy of my own heart, when I'm reading the Bible, I tend to read it privately, right? I tend to read what I want. That's not what it means. When I hear someone declare God's Word, it doesn't mean I never disagree with it, but it hits me like nothing else. And usually, yes, it's myself preaching, but occasionally I get a seven-foot Dutchman, a six-foot frat boy, a 40-year-old ex-cult leader preaching, and I love it. I need it. I need someone to get in my face. I need someone to tell me the hard truth because, again, where else am I going to get God's Word hit me like that? And I need that. The last couple, I, I love coming and gathering as a church because, for me, I can be me. And my identity is in Jesus. I accepted that a while ago, not a long time ago. I spent a lot of my life working for the approval of men. It's very tempting and very common. But my identity is in Christ, not in what I say or do or wear, which is very clear, but in what Jesus has done. Not what I have done, good or bad, but in what Jesus has done. And Jesus doesn't reject me. And the church is supposed to be a place where sinners who believe that gather. Where I know that Jesus sees all my dirt, even the dirt that you guys don't know about. But he sees it, and he accepts me, and that is how we're supposed to live here. People who believe the gospel, and that's difficult. But when James says to confess to one another, that means to open your hearts to one another. And our tendency is like, last time I opened my heart to someone, it got stomped on. Forget it. But there's supposed to be a place, and this is it. You're not going to be going through full confessionals at work, I don't think. In your social clubs, your 4-H clubs, I doubt it. This is the place where we confess sin and someone says, it's covered. It's forgiven. I love you too much to let you be the same. Stop sinning. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I need that. And I love coming to church because the reality is I sin. And I sin a lot, and so do you. And sometimes I do things that make me disappointed and angry with myself, and sometimes I do things that make me prideful. I feel really spiritual. Still sinful. But church, and especially communion, we don't take communion, and I'll hit this in a couple weeks, we don't take communion because well, that's what churches do. We take communion to remind ourselves of our depravity, of our sin, and our identity in Jesus. 
that my old self was crucified with Jesus and I am risen anew, and this is participation as a body in his death and resurrection. He told us to remember it, and I need that. I need to be reminded all the time that my bad days are never so bad that I'm beyond the reach of God's grace, and my good days are never so good that I'm beyond the need of it. That's what I'm reminded of. And as I come together, practically, I come together, that is what we celebrate. That is the pinnacle of our worship. Not the music, not the sermon, communion. This is what we're about. The church is not perfect because people are not perfect. But Jesus is. And by God's grace, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, through the church, I will start to look more like him every day until the day I see him face to face, which I desperately wish for. Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory for all that you have done in bringing us together. Father, we are your people. We have been chosen among all the peoples of the earth, not because we're special, but because you just love us. And Father, we are loved because we are clothed with your Son. I pray, Lord, that our identity will be found in Christ and what He has done to bring us into your family. And thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who might teach us about Jesus and empower us to love and empower us to grow and conform us more to the image of Your Son until we see You again. May this place be sacred. May this gathering be special. May it not just be the thing that we reject when something better comes along, but the time and the place set apart, devoted to You as Your body and Your people living in Your presence. May be glorified. May your son be lifted up on high today. Amen.